Also, I feel like people could just point at the Clippers and say, yeah, they're haunted. Oh, but come on. No team's cursed. Except the Maple Leafs. Except the Maple Maple Leafs. Leafs. (laughs) And the Jets. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 1st, 2021. Hope everyone had a great Memorial Day weekend. I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. How's it going? Hi, Sarah. It's uh, fine. How are you? <laughs> not, not bad. <laughs> um, and that laughing voice you hear is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. Everything's fine. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a Sarah, reasonable we're question. we're fine. We're fine. Okay. All right. All right. Everything in the world is fine. <laughs> You guys, I can't believe I'm going to have to start off this podcast by talking about hockey, but... Yes! (laughs) I owe Jeff an apology, although he's, like, gotten up, shut a door in his office, (laughs) I I guess, just to... I walked out. He walked out. It was a a mic drop. (laughs) Yes, but Jeff, you were right about the Canadians uh, beating the Leafs. I was wrong. And yeah, I think that this is proof that even with a 3-1 lead and vastly superior talent, you cannot count on the Maple Leafs to even close out a first-round series, much less in their Stanley Cup drought, which what was the last time they won? 60, 1967? It's a I long time. Yeah, they just... It's something about that team. They just can't... No matter who's in there... They just can't handle the pressure that that city is putting on them to win. <laughs> and it they just wilt. It's just inevitable. Um, speaking of sports in which the uh, highly favored team <laughs> loses weirdly, uh, Champions League final this weekend. I My prediction was, I mean, I was just like so dismissive of Chelsea's chances. I was like, oh, yeah, Man City's obviously going to win. It's going to be, you know, not that. The, not that even that interesting. And Chelsea I took won. what you said as gospel, Sarah, because I know yeah. nothing about any of this. And I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, Sarah's totally right. It's it's just going to be, you know, I'm penciling in Man City. Yeah, no. no. Then I, then I uh, being the avid soccer watcher that I am, I looked at ESPN.com's front page, saw that Chelsea had won, went, huh, oh, that's cool, and then closed the page. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, as soccer fan, is quite a journey. Is is your antipathy toward uh, soccer more or less than mine toward hockey? That's really, I think, I think what we need more. to. Interesting. I mean, well, I, I, it's not antipathy; it's apathy. Mm. Ooh, it's just sort of like, eh, they, something happened over there, whatever. Whereas Sarah might actively hate <laughs> hockey. <laughs> yeah. The opposite of love isn't hate; it's indifference. Oh wow! Oh wow. yeah. <laughs> Wow, this podcast has already blown my mind, and we are just a couple of minutes in. I so you know it makes me think that I don't really have a sport that I just outright hate and can get a like free pass on. I guess motorsports, but I still engage with Neil when he talks about F one. You know, I'm sort of intrigued <laughs> on the surface about motorsports. Yeah, did you catch Helio Castroneves no, win the Indy five hundred this weekend? No matter what you say next, the answer is definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair, that was another one that I saw on ESPN.com. I was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so we need to determine which sport Jeff hates and then, like, dig at it um, more regularly. All right, that can we can do that. Okay. Okay. 
It's the opposite of golf. What is the opposite of golf? I what don't know. What is the opposite of golf? That's a great question. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it to Jason Kokrak, big win. Big win. Stop. On today's show, we'll discuss Naomi Osaka's decision to pull out of the French Open and how athletes' mental health collides with the demands of sports promotion. Then we'll talk about the NBA playoffs, the good, the bad, and the stop spitting and throwing things at players seriously. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Naomi Osaka announced last Wednesday that she would not speak to any press during the French Open, citing her mental health needs during the tournament. All four Grand Slam tournaments responded in a statement that said, quote, the mental health of players competing in our tournaments and on the tours is of the utmost importance. But the French Open also announced that Osaka would be fined $15,000 for failure to participate in her first post-match interview, and that repeated failures could result in her disqualification from the tournament and suspension from other Grand Slams. On Monday, Osaka, who is ranked number two in the world, announced her withdrawal from the French Open. She opened up about bouts of depression she had suffered since winning her first Grand Slam in 2018, and she said she didn't want to be a distraction or take away from the tennis being played in Paris. But now that tennis is going to be played without one of its most exciting stars. It seems like this story is happening on two levels. The specific issue between Osaka and the French Open, and then the broader issue of reporter access versus athlete well-being. Let's start with that specific one. On CNN, USA Today columnist Christine Brennan said Osaka's exit from the tournament was both unfortunate and avoidable. I think if she picked up the phone or texted Chris Everett or Billie Jean King a week or so ago and said, hey, how would you suggest I handle this? They probably would have said something different. And I think that's where the problem uh, lay, that it was it became something that got out of control for Naomi and the issue of mental health was lost in the fact that contractually she's obliged to do interviews as are all tennis players and most athletes around the world. And that is because they want to promote their sport and women's tennis always has been in the lead at the vanguard of, of PR and accessibility and working with the media. And I think that's why we saw this uh, explode in this manner. So Jeff, do you think that someone in the game like Chris Everett or Billie Jean King could have helped guide Naomi Osaka through this in a way that would have allowed her to still compete at the French Open? Or given the media requirements of players, was this always destined to blow up? Well, I think it was always destined to be a problem, but I do think it was handled very poorly. I mean, I think that much is evident. I don't think there was much communication between both sides. I think she could have. It didn't need to happen out in the open. You know, I think everything sort of seems, seems to happen on social media. But this is one where they could have, you know, her her managers, her reps could have, you know, talked to the French Open organizers and maybe come up with something. I don't know. I mean, like the French Open is there saying like they don't want to set a precedent where a player, a star player doesn't want to talk to the media. And then all of a sudden no one wants to talk to the media because no one wants to talk to the media. None of these players do. Um, and they all do it on an obligation. So it, it would be a bad precedent, I guess. But that being said, you know, they, they come out with a statement that was sort of almost like way too hostile and threatening and all this. And it clearly annoyed her for good reason. And and it, it kind of all backfired. And I think, you know, I always think that some of these things 
could be negotiated behind the scenes. And there probably are like cases, maybe not this specific case, but there are sort of all things that don't come to light because, you know, they're handled in a better way and they're not handled in this sort of open forum. And, it, and, 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 and you know what? It's kind of a lose-lose because now this tournament loses probably the biggest star in the sport right now. And, you know, we don't get, as fans, we don't get to watch her. And, and you know, that that sucks. So, um, I mean, I hope, you know, in terms of her mental health and all that, I mean, you know, I think it is quite serious and we don't really know. And I don't really even know it's our business. But, you know, she there's a chance she doesn't play in Wimbledon. Yeah, I there was a missed opportunity here. I mean, maybe maybe it's impossible to have like nuanced conversations anymore. Right. But like to talk about how how to there was a missed opportunity here to address a player's um, mental health needs in a way that could have been, you know, supportive and compassionate and and set a precedent for how we handle people who need a little bit more care and and compassion. I do sort of wonder if if Naomi had gone to the tournament and said, I, I'm struggling, I need some help here, and done that, to, you know, addressed it with them, if they could have come back and said, okay, these are the kind of parameters we can set up and, like, ease this burden on you a little bit. Because there are obviously things that could be done if everyone was invested in making this experience better. I'm sure of it. I mean, there just has to be. And I was just surprised that, yeah, that they couldn't work something out, work with her uh, around it. And I do think that it was just sort of like things escalated very quickly. And, um, you know, she sort of framed it at first as just not wanting to talk to the press before she opened up more about the reasons why. And I think everybody sort of uh, on the tournament side assumed that, oh, well, here's another prima donna player, doesn't want to talk to the press, doesn't, you know, this, that, or the other. And they responded with sort of the most forceful counter response that they could of the fines and the, um, you know, all these threats and things like that. And it just escalated. And it really, hopefully it can be like a um, a learning moment of how, basically how not to deal with this and how to, to maybe work with the player uh, if they are having some of these issues moving forward. Because you're totally right, Jeff, that it's a, it's a complete lose-lose. And it didn't, it, I just come away from it feeling like it didn't have to play out at all like this. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about this sort of underlying issue of this, you know, the the availability to press that really all athletes have to deal with. And I think, you know, Jeff is right that like, I don't think athletes love this, <laughs> these interactions, but they are sort of integral to athletes becoming stars. I mean, like the athletes in the press need each other, but they don't always have the same goals. And that's sort of the the tension there. I think, you know, with social media and the way that athletes are more can have their own audience, there's some sense that maybe they don't need the media as much as they used to, which may be true. But I think there's still it was telling to me that the that other tennis players didn't band with Naomi and say we're not going to do press either no one else really did that and that was sort of an interesting thing I think most athletes even though they don't love those post game press conferences they do see the importance of them and still still mostly participate in them yeah this is a this is a complicated issue for me I I generally will always kind of side with the media and the press Um, I, I do think it is really important 
you know, that we have, you know, a have a free press and a press that can talk to athletes and can have access to them. And I think it makes for a better product, promotes coverage of these sports. And I think a lot of it is necessary, it's fundamental. But I think also at the same time, what she particularly had beef with might be, you know, kind of a relic of the past. You know, I've been to these Grand Slams. And if you haven't been there, what they, you know, these players finish their match, they're exhausted mentally, physically, and they get put in front of this scrum of reporters. That's an international, you know, not to make generalizations about foreign media versus American media, but the, an international media pool, which often some sometimes the questions are just stupid and they're inappropriate. And especially if you're the loser of the match, it's really tough. And it, it was kind of hard to watch. And And frankly, the fact that it's, you know, I, they print out quotes and every reporter and you know, half the reporters aren't even there watching. They just get the quotes and they write their stories and they plug them in and everyone's kind of writing the same stories. And I really don't think it promotes like good journalism. Like, I, I don't think like anyone's getting a bombshell great story and something that's being said to every reporter in the pool anyway. So because of that, you get pretty like most athletes who are well-trained and well-seasoned will just speak in platitudes and not really say anything interesting. Sometimes you'll see, you know, like famously, you'll see like Serena or Andy Roddick or someone be, when they lost, be pretty bitter. And then it's kind of like exploitive. We're like watching these people when they're, you know, they just got eliminated from a tournament and we're pressing them or poking them with, you know, annoying questions and then seeing if we can get their, you know, to lose their temper. And like, you know, what's the point of that really? That's not, journalism um that that does feel like unfair and you know i think back on tom parada who was our tennis writer at 538 my tennis writer at wsj who's like sadly tragically passed away recently um and was a great reporter but i remember um thinking of him in these in these press pools and he never went to these things you know he always said like what am i gonna i'm not gonna get anything there just listening yeah. to them to ask questions he he was off to the side talking to Nadal's uncle, trying to get like a one-on-one, <laughs> um, trying to get something exclusive. But like, th- there's no great journalism that's coming out of it. So I do think it's unnecessary, and it makes me think back to you know Marshawn Lynch at mm-hmm. Super Bowl Media Day, and Marshawn Lynch, who was an interesting, thoughtful player, and actually one of the NFL's more interesting personalities for the whole time he was there. But he hated this. And kind of rightfully, because Super Bowl Media Day is like the thing I'm describing times a thousand. It is just the dumbest, most contrived, forced media obligation among a player. And he went famous late in the media day, you know, in Arizona before the Super Bowl with the Patriots and answered every question like, I'm only here so I don't get get fined. (laughs) And it was kind of like good for him because, you know, that, that in that case, that is dumb, you know, having having these kind of like sort of gratuitous media obligations. But then again, this is not to say, I, I, I do think it is important. I think I do think it is part of the contract of the professional athlete to talk to the media. Um, I just I just don't know if this forum, the one she's protesting is totally necessary. Yeah, I think that, I th- I, yeah, I think that's right. There are times when athletes need to stand in front of a group of reporters and answer uncomfortable questions. I mean, I think we do want that, forum for accountability and the questions you know the questions even if media you know one of the things is the media needs to ask better questions well even good questions athletes aren't always going to want to answer those you know one of the things that uh, that 
Naomi apparently was struggling with was questions about her performance on Clay, and it was making her doubt her ability to to compete at Roland Garros. But those are those are important questions to ask about how you're doing on surfaces you're struggling with, and and so it's not just bad questions. But I do think there are, you know, I think most reporters would much rather have time spent one-on-one with athletes. Um, They don't want their questions to be, you know, if they have a good question, they don't want to waste it on an answer that everyone's going to hear. Yeah. Why would you ask, why would you ask a reporter that in front of everyone? Now everyone has the story. Right, exactly. And so this forum isn't great. Other forums, you know, would be better whether that access is granted. You know, some sports are better than others. Some leagues, some teams are better than others at at making sure people have access. There was a great uh, thread yesterday by Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for The Athletic, talking about like, well, in in times of COVID right now, everything is more difficult because, you know, everything is on Zoom, whatever. But these nobody likes these everyone wants that like that those questions they can ask individually and they get to know the athletes and the players um and that's that's a much different experience than these like really awkward (laughs) press conferences after you know after losing in a grand slam i mean that's terrible for everyone right i think there's probably a better way if really all we're talking about is the gamers then i think there's probably a better way to do it um, but that being said, you know, it was interesting seeing the players react because they weren't all, you know, as you said, Sarah, standing by her. I think it was, you know, Azarenka and a couple other players were like, yeah, that's that's part of the deal. That's what you signed up for. Um, I basically saying I don't like doing it either. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those players, like, they want to beat her. You know, they, they don't uh, they don't want her to get better at clay. And maybe if she has to answer questions about clay and that hurts her confidence on clay, they would be just fine with that because they'll beat her on clay. You know, and so that's a little bit of a if you flip that around, it's like, you know, if you know you need to get better in that area. I mean, maybe you don't need to hear it from every single reporter or whatever, but it's sort of like I, I just don't know if a high level athlete, if it, if it truly you know, being asked about it by a reporter can like be sort of the factor that makes you totally lose confidence uh, on that. I I don't know. It's like, how do you get to be one of the best players in the world? uh, And, you know, a question like that can kind of ruin your confidence on uh, on a certain surface. I don't know. I think that speaks to other things going on with her, right? I mean, you're right. Like that's that's the kind of thing that players here all the time and should probably be able to compartmentalize and not worry about and like move on with their day and they're not get better on clay well right right well that's obviously what everyone wants to do right but i think and and that's why i wish this had been centered from the beginning as being about you know specifically how to deal with a, a mental health challenge that you're having that isn't necessarily universal for everyone but is something that you know that that one person is dealing with and how to accommodate that you know the part of the reasoning for the grand slams reacting the way they did which they did not need to react so harshly but was that it is a fairness issue of you know those players uh, for one to to skip it to skip the time involved in it and the you know the (laughs) the emotion that might come out of it or whatever isn't fair to the players who do have to do it and so that that was partially why but there should still be some way to carve out and like focus on the importance of 
treating mental health as, you know, as a thing, as an important thing and as something we should think about. And we shouldn't, do we need to put people through the ringer every time when they're struggling? I mean, that's, you know, how do we treat athletes as human beings and not just as the people playing for us, which is the kind of central tension here, I think that we're dealing with all all around. I mean, with player agency, there are these questions then of how to keep things fair, to keep things, to, to maintain access and that kind of stuff while still like treating, treating people as human. Um, there should be a way to do that, I think. Well, it's tough. I mean, it's a fine line between, you know, I think uh, especially older school reporters would probably look and and err on the side of like a player needs to be tougher or something, which I think is a mentality that we're kind of getting out of and and moving um, away from. But then there's the question of, well, how how soft is too soft? You know, how, how much are we doing the work for players or athletes in terms of, you know, promoting them? only on their terms and not tre- and treating them with kid gloves and not treating them, you know, with sort of a, an outsider type of uh, perspective. And that's what I think is a risk also when all of the access is dictated through the players through like quid pro quo type stuff yeah. where it's like, I'll only talk to people that give me favorable treatment. That doesn't seem like the right answer either. And I don't think that's what she was doing here. No. But I do think that that is like a a road down this path as well. And a question that needs to be answered is like, how do you keep things tough and fair uh, while also, yeah, giving, you know, people space if they need it, you know, who gets to decide that also, you know, if every athlete is like, I, you know, I'm just, I'm not feeling it today. Don't want to talk, you know, I'm having a bad mental health day. Sorry. You know, then we'd never get any kind of questions ever. Yeah. I do think though, I do think, and I keep going back to this, there is something about it is, it is in many ways when you do and you watch these, these press conferences, it is, it sort of brings a public speaking, you know, it, it, you're speaking to a crowd and there's a certain anxiety level there that is just more potent than you'll ever get in a one-on-one and I think we've seen a lot of athletes just not be able to deal with it. I mean, look, she's far, you know, neither, you know, Marshawn Lynch or her, like they're not the only ones. There's a lot right. of athletes who, who struggled with this. Um, a lot a of lot people of, hate yeah, public and, and, speaking. And, That's yeah. like one of the biggest fears anyone has. Yeah. And a lot of times these athletes are, are great one-on-one. And if you can get them, you know, if you can get them to talk not in that form that they'll have interesting things to say and it, it just that that is the sort of um is, is the conundrum here is that we're we're asking them to do something that i think is is a little bit unreasonable um especially after a loss yeah i think i think that's right i think you know this is something that i think the entire sports and sports media landscapes will need to sort of figure out it's not it's not going away and and i do think there's you know, if there's something good that can come out of this situation, it might be that there's a kind of reimagining how how this how this process works. It doesn't work for anyone really great right now. So maybe there's a way we can, you know, tell interesting stories about athletes, you know, have some access to them, but also be really respectful of them as as what in what they need to. There I think there's something that can come out of this that that maybe is positive going forward. All right, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and then we'll come back to talk about the NBA. We 
we are nearing the end of the first round of the NBA playoffs with the Bucks sweeping the heat and the Nets having a chance to wrap up the Celtics tonight. But in the other series, there are still plenty of interesting games to be played. There have also been plenty of injuries. Joel Embiid left the Sixers game four loss to the Wizards on Monday after a hard fall. And Anthony Davis went down with a strained groin on Sunday, which puts the Lakers in a bit of a hole against the Suns and a resilient Chris Paul. But a neck injury to Luka Doncic is leaving Dallas in an even bigger hole against the other L.A. team. The Clippers looked so dominant in games three of four of that series, in fact, that on ESPN's Pardon the Interruption, Frank Isola said these were some of the biggest games in Clippers history. In that game three, you talk about big games in franchise history, that is going to rank right up there. That was a game that they had to have, and the way that they started off, they were getting blown out. And Kawhi Down Leonard, 32-11. Incredible. getting crushed. And how about this? Kawhi Leonard is averaging 33 points in this series. And my issue now with Dallas is Luka, and we've seen so many injuries throughout the playoffs. We just talked about yeah. Anthony Davis. Chris Paul, Jalen Brown is unavailable for the Celtics. You have Kemba Walker is out. But Luka, if he's only going to give you 19 points, Dallas just doesn't no have enough. And now the Clippers go back home, Michael. They've already lost two games. Do you really see them going back after taking two in Dallas? They're going to lose a home game. I know they always disappoint us, but I actually have a lot more faith now in the Clippers. We have seen a pretty big turnaround for L.A. in the last two games. Neil, how much of this shift would you say is because of what the Clippers are doing and how much is down to Luka's injury? Well, I think uh, especially in game four, it was really down to the injury. If you look like his numbers were so far off of what they had been, he went nine for 24, one for seven from three, just wasn't the the combination of scorer and playmaker uh, that he had been so dynamically, not just in games uh, one and two, but even in game three, when uh, the one that he got hurt in and, and reportedly played the second half with this neck injury, he still was great in that game. You know, he had uh, 44 points. I think that you could really especially see it in, in game four. And, you know, the Clippers still did not necessarily do a great job of slowing down Dallas in, in game three, uh, but certainly they did in game Game four, uh, where Dallas was held to such an uncharacteristic level of offensive efficiency that I think you can kind of chalk all of that up to Luca just being so much less dynamic than than we've been used to seeing him being. Yeah, eighty-one points for the Mavs was pretty shocking. Like that—that that was just yeah. surprising. Yeah. And this had been the best offensive team of the playoffs by far going into that game and and just the way they came out in that series that they had an offensive rating I believe of over 130 points per 100 possessions and some of that is on the Clippers defense not giving uh any kind of resistance uh, it seemed uh, early in that series but uh, yeah Dallas only scored 88.7 points per 100 possessions in game four so it was kind of just like a night and day difference I I would be curious if there are other cases without a player getting injured that that uh, team came out and their offensive efficiency just dropped by 50 points uh, per 100 compared with earlier in the in the series. So yeah, I think that if Luca is healthy, that doesn't happen. Yeah, Jeff, do you agree with Isola that the Clippers turnaround if they win the series is enough to erase some of their, their some of their bad reputation in the playoffs, or does this I, matter less because it's just the first round? No, no. I mean, no. I don't think it erases any. I mean, look, this team was <laughs> <laughs> this team was built to like win titles. 
they weren't built to eke past the Mavericks in the first <laughs> round with an injured which, Luka Doncic. Which, for the record, is what they did last year as well. They right. did beat the Mavericks in the first round. Yeah. Talk to me when we're getting into the second round or further, which they never get to, for the I, record. I do think they were incredibly important, these wins, in that if they hadn't won those games, and let, like it looked like, it looked like this team was going to get swept. And I think um, a quick exit to Dallas in the first round after what happened last year would have been sort of the death knell for the Clippers. I think you would have seen Kawhi maybe leave, um, mm. go somewhere else, and and maybe just a realization that this team, for whatever reason, whether you know it's Rivers or Ty Lue or whoever's coaching the team, is just not built the right way for the playoff and playoff success. And I think you might've seen the team almost come, come apart. Like I, it would have been hard to sort of see them like, you know, Kawhi come back and uh, get the band back together for another regular season until a playoffs where, you know, they have even more pressure next year after losing twice early. So I do think they need to do more. I think like winning this series, which I, I think if, if Luke is still, you know, dealing with a neck injury, I think they are going to win this series. But I think they need to do more to sort of prove that they're serious contenders and they, they are built for the playoffs. I mean, if they lose this this series, are is the franchise just cursed? Are we just going to say that's it? They can never. I mean, you different players, different coaches, a, still a history of like terrible postseason results. I. Are they well, they just wouldn't cursed? be the first super team to fall short uh, in that way. I mean, I do think I, I'm not sure what it does in terms of the dynamic. Like there have been so many times in which we expected the Clippers to become more, you know, to rival the Lakers. I don't know if that's even possible, but, you know, we uh, uh, in the media, we're always kind of trying to spin up these narratives about that. Uh, and yeah, at every possible turn, it seems like that just doesn't materialize. But I'm also curious as to what it says about the like future super team concepts, like our teams going to be maybe a little more hesitant to try to kind of get, do this get rich quick type of building scheme when they see such a big high profile example fail uh, so many times. I don't know. Well, maybe I'm just that's wishful thinking on my part because I'm right. a little sick of the super teams. <laughs> right. But I mean, if the Nets win it all. Well, the then Nets are, it... Sarah, the Nets are a super duper team. That's Oh, different. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Also, I feel like people could just point at the Clippers and say, yeah, they're haunted. That's just like... Oh, but come on. No team's cursed. Look, they, they Except come... the Maple Leafs. Except, Except the Maple, the Maple Leafs. Leafs. And the Jets. Um, but besides for... <laughs> besides right. for those two, no team's really cursed. I mean, the Mets are kind of cursed, but... Um, the Bill, the but Buffalo no Bills are, are cursed. cursed. But besides okay, for those yeah. four teams... Um, <laughs> Sure. Maybe Atlanta Falcons. Anybody want to take? <laughs> yeah, they're cursed. Yeah. So there's a lot of cursed teams out there. It turns Once you out. get past the six clearly cursed franchises, <laughs> that we can think of at this exact moment. Yeah. Maybe they're cursed. I don't know. Maybe they're they cursed. might be cursed. They seem cursed. But I mean, the weird thing is, is like Kawhi is the most proven commodity in the NBA. Like the well, guy. That's what makes this so extra yeah, ridiculous. He wins right. titles. So. <laughs> Multi-time Finals MVP dragged the Raptors to the championship, yeah. and you're telling me that him plus Paul George uh, in LA with all this fanfare 
is at risk of losing in the first round to Dallas. Like I don't know. I, I don't it, know it does enough seem... about. I don't know yeah. enough about basketball to to tell you exactly what is wrong with the the alchemy of the Clippers currently. But it is not. It, like it, look, if they lose, whether it's Dallas or whether it's the next round, if they lose, then clearly something's wrong. I mean, they have Kawhi Leonard. They should have on paper a team that should be going to the finals or at least competing to the very end for a title. And it's just not there. I mean, I, so I, I don't know. I, I do think it needs to be rethought. I mean, we still, for what it's worth, our model still has the Clippers at 19% to win the finals. That's second behind the Jazz. Now the Jazz are finally the top team after being the top team in the actual <laughs> standings all year. They are uh, they are up there. So, so you know, our model doesn't know about the curse, I think. Um, so I don't know if that means that it exists or not. <laughs> Need to program that in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be the thing we add in the offseason. Well, what other playoff series going on still are you guys still really interested in? Well, I think Portland versus Denver has been really fascinating. And I thought that uh, that Denver had figured it out after that opening game, kind of laid an egg there, uh, <laughs> win the next two. You think, okay, they, they've got this now. They, they figured it out. But Portland, I mean, they we always say this about them. I feel like every playoffs, they exceed the expectations of our model or stats in general. And, and they're just a, a team that is a very tough out. And they were able to neutralize. They did the same thing in game four that they had done in game one, which was neutralize Jokic as a playmaker. He only had one assist in that game. Uh, also, I mean, he only scored 16 points. Uh, he, he scored more than that in game one. But to me, that's really a telling stat is whether he's able to not just get himself involved, but get others involved. And Denver's offense just really when he is not playing that passing role and that setup man role, it's just not the same. And yeah. Portland has kind of been able to figure that out at times during this series in a way that I'm a little concerned for Denver going forward. Maybe not, maybe they win the series, but you know, about their viability when other teams start copying that. Yeah. I think that's the only series that is like truly up for grabs and is, you know, if anything's going to go seven, I think it'll be that one. Although maybe what about Lakers. Phoenix and the Lakers? Yeah, maybe yeah. Lakers Suns too, but that, you know, this, it's such a bummer when injuries play such a big role, um, especially at this time of the year. And I think that series has been, I think at least some of the excitement has been kind of crippled by the the unknowns of the injury, whether that's Paul's injury or whether that's Davis's injury. It's not totally fun. It's not like the best type of storyline. So I think that kind of is hurting the, I guess, intrigue of that series. But it will be interesting to watch LeBron because we've seen him do this, obviously, many times before when he's kind of, well, not left on his own, but sort of left without the other sort of running mate uh star power and whether he can kind of will his team to a series win i mean that'll be, that'll be interesting but otherwise you know the Embiid injury that's that's a, that's a real bummer too i think uh the sixers will be fine at least in this series but going forward oof, i don't know that's not great and you know i'm interested to hear your take sarah as quasi bucks fan um <laughs> whether the stars are aligning this year you know i kind of thought they might be until um dante divincenzo oh yeah and then they have injuries it yeah is and like everywhere i know and he's he's not a star obviously but it fills an important role for that team and so that that was sort of it seemed like things were really you know clicking for them and i thought wow the bucks 
the Bucks Nets matchup, I think is, I, and I still think this. I think that's going to be. I think it's going to be a great series. I hope it's a great series. I'm not as. I, I don't have as high a hopes for the Bucks being able to beat the Nets. Um, but, but I do think that'll be a really a good series. And yeah, Embiid needs to be healthy for the east to play out like we want to see it also can we just like pour one out for the knicks like i know <laughs> that, 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 that went south fast yeah oh <laughs> uh, yeah hey, as a former as an atlantan and a former hawks employee right. i uh you know, have 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 no regrets about what has happened so far in that series. Right, we'll just I put know. it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's just a, a just a bad time for Julius Randle to turn back into a pumpkin. Um, <laughs> turn back into a pumpkin. <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's a that, yep. That's a very good point. Um, we also need to talk about kind of maybe the biggest disappointment so far of the NBA playoffs, which are the fans. So last Wednesday, a fan threw popcorn at Russell Westbrook in Philadelphia. The next night, a fan spit on Trey Young at Madison Square Garden. In Utah, fans made racist and sexually explicit comments to John Morant's family. And then in Boston, a fan threw a water bottle at Kyrie Irving. Is this... And was arrested. Wasn't he arrested? He was arrested, yeah. Is, Is this like... Is this just extra awful right now, or is it like a the worst sign that sports are back to normal? I don't know. I I can't quite get the mentality of spending, you know, because a lot of these people, in order to do what they did, they had to sit pretty close, spending the amount of money that they did on NBA playoff tickets only to do that and get themselves banned and, and you know, do that uh, is... Like why, especially after such a long wait, like uh, you know, where there weren't fans in games, it's sort of like you waited this long to and spent that much money to come back just to do this, right? Like, what are you doing? Did why you are you doing it? How to act with a year away from being at the game? Like, what? Yeah, it's strange. Yes, you would think you would think common sense would be like, I'm just happy to be here, right? Um, but no. And but in many ways that is not unusual. We've seen this for a long time. Fans misbehaving, especially in 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 the NBA and in the playoffs. So it's not terribly surprising, but it is a letdown. Yeah, it's. I think that's the thing. It's so disappointing to see people. You know, for so long we were waiting that. Well, first we were just waiting for sports to be played, and then we were waiting for fans to be able to go again and see the, their teams, and then to like to not be able to handle good players on other teams and need to like abuse them like that it's like oh wait you should have just stayed in your living room you can yell whatever you want at the tv but like throwing popcorn at someone like what or what are you doing and you can use the bathroom anytime you want it's uh (laughs) the the drinks don't cost uh 12 bucks it's great yeah living room highly recommended yeah maybe look into that guys um you know i think the players were excited to be playing in front of fans again, and now it's like, oh, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe no, not. No. And especially some of the young players. You look at like John Moran, who's like basically never played in front of a crowd at the NBA yeah. level. I mean, I guess the beginning of last year, but um, right. But it had been a while, yeah. But but uh, especially like in a sort of pressure cooker environment. So I think you're seeing like some of these young players really respond to it, and I think that's been fun. I mean, it's yeah. great to have them back, but not this part of it. We thought maybe we could have bought us some time before the this this side of the ugly side of of fandom reared its head. Yeah, absolutely. Be better, 
Folks, be better. There are plenty of reasons, especially in Boston, to hate Kyrie Irving, but you don't have to throw a water bottle at him. I think yeah. that's sort of like you, you've you proven him right. You've lived down to his right. expectations and, and some of the things that he was saying before that series where it's like you could have been on good behavior and people would just chalk up Kyrie to being, you know, his usual uh, self. Uh, but, you know, you had to live down to his uh, his expectations and prove him right. Yeah. Yes goes back to John Rocker. As horrible as John Rocker was, don't throw batteries at him, folks. <laughs> that just proves his point. Now, I will <laughs> say for Philly, um, they used to throw batteries. Now they're only throwing popcorn. So maybe that's progress? Oh, that's interesting. That's an improvement. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. Um, all right. Well, we can leave this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. What do you have for us, Neil? Yeah, well, I want to talk about early season MLB just weirdness in terms of players who are having great seasons that maybe you did not expect to have great seasons. So uh, probably by the time we record next episode, We'll be at the 60-game mark of the 2021 MLB season, which a year ago would have been the whole season. So we would talk, be talking about these players as though they led baseball or were among the leaders for an entire season. But luckily, or perhaps unluckily, if you are these players, uh, there's still more time for them to kind of regress to the mean. But for instance, right now, our, the batting average leader in Major League Baseball is... Nick Castellanos, who's a who's a pretty good hitter. I mean, we can kind of classify him as that. It's not too surprising. His teammate Jesse Winker, though, is hitting 348 right behind Castellanos. Maybe not the player that you expected to be. I believe he was leading in batting average as recently as uh, last week. So uh, certainly not something that we would expect. Adam Frazier of the Pittsburgh Pirates, also really high in batting average. Uh, he's hitting 332. He ranks third in the majors. It's always fun to look at batting average because it's a very volatile statistic uh, and you can have some of these um, names near the top of the list. And not all of them are weird or unexpected. Chris Bryant is fourth. It's been a pretty good bounce back year for him, but he's a star player, at least J.D. Martinez in there. Vlad Guerrero Jr. having uh, the long-awaited, amazing breakout season. None of those are surprising. Yermin Mercedes, though, uh, hitting 311. He's in the top 10. Uh, this is his rookie season he technically played one game last season but he's a rookie this year uh and uh, he's 28 years old been a real revelation for um the white Sox so far uh and he also has seven home runs uh which again if it holds up over an entire season uh, that would be on pace for 22 over 162 games and it would join him with uh, Adolis Garcia of the Texas Rangers, who right now leads baseball with 16 home runs. That would be 38 over an entire 162-game season. Uh, and he also is a 28-year-old who is, has still had his rookie status intact. He had 24 games played in his career before this year, did not break the the barrier that you needed to, to, have, uh, to not be considered a rookie anymore. So now we have two rookies this season alone 
who are on pace to uh, shatter the 20 home run mark. Uh, and this isn't, it's not like in 2019 where they're just giving out home runs like they're candy. You still, you got to work for them a little bit more this season. Uh, so maybe we would expect less to see players like this uh, having these seasons. But uh, to have two rookies who are 28 years old put up 20 home runs in a season. There was a great stat that David Schoenfield of ESPN had last week where he said that this is pretty much unprecedented. If you go back to the post-World War II era, there have been only seven rookies who were 28 or older and hit 20 home runs in a season. One of those was Luke Easter, who was denied playing earlier because of the color barrier. Uh, but the other ones are Christian Walker of the Arizona Diamondbacks in, tw- uh, in 2019. Uh, he had 29 home runs as a 28-year-old rookie. Mike Yastrzemski at, uh, in 2019 as well, at age 28, he had 21 home runs. Uh, and then you have Bobby Darwin. I don't know who that is. From, the, uh, from 1972, he had 22 home runs as a 29-year-old rookie. Garrett Jones in uh, 2009 had 21. Ryan Schimpf in 2016 had 20 at age 28 as a rookie, and Arrestus Destrada, who I believe became a broadcaster uh, since then in 1993 at age 31 as a rookie, had 20 uh, home runs. So uh, it's it's really rare to see these types of performances from guys that don't have uh, a track record from earlier uh, in their 20s emerging as rookies to have these types of seasons. There's also only been one 28-year-old rookie that qualified and hit 300 in that post-war era, and that was Joey Wendell of the Tampa Bay Rays in 2018. I think it's interesting that a lot of these guys have done this in recent seasons because it does speak to maybe something uh, of the way, the philosophy of how talent is developed in baseball. It's not just about finding prospects and bringing them along and people play, you know, pro- uh, develop as they're projected, but it's also about finding players that can make adjustments in midstream and maybe if they're not successful uh, and kind of stalled out in their uh, early 20s. They make a swing change. They study themselves using data that they can kind of collect, and they figure out how to improve. And all of a sudden, you're in uh, the major leagues and having these kind of breakout seasons. So uh, I, I just love looking at the early leaderboards, though, uh, and and just analyzing. Like you never thought that these guys would have these seasons. On the pitching side, Kevin Gossman, who we talked about uh, when we talked about the San Francisco Giants, he leads the major leagues in wins above replacement right now. A a one hundredth of a war ahead of Max Muncie of the Dodgers, who maybe I mean we knew Max Muncie was a great player. Sarah, you've been on the Max Muncie train for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to your fantasy team. <laughs> maybe didn't quite expect him to be in the contention for best player in baseball. Yeah. Uh, so that's been interesting to to see him have that emergence. But yeah, the the most of the rest of the names on the war leaderboard, at least are players that you would expect or at least have been dominant. Jacob deGrom is fourth. Garrett Cole is fifth. Brandon Woodruff is third, but... You know he's been good. He, uh, you know, he's a he's a name brand pitcher. At least Zach Wheeler. So, uh, you know, the surprises are not everywhere in the leaderboards uh, early on. Uh, and maybe it's the biggest surprise is that so many of the players at the top of the leaderboard are mostly players that we would expect, uh, especially when it comes to a stat like WAR, which really tries to synthesize everything a player does into uh, a single number of value. 
But there are those outliers. There are the Yermin Mercedes. There are also the Adolis Garcia. I mean, just amazing to see um, the Rangers. Nobody was really expecting them to do anything. And a team that has been no hit multiple times so far this season, as we detailed, to also have one of the best offensive players in baseball um, and, and the home run leader. Not sure how to square that. Maybe it <laughs> goes to what we we're saying of a lot of guys are swinging for the fences. And if you come up short, you don't get hits. But yeah, I, I like these breakout stories uh, every year. And, you know, it's a, in some ways, it's a little bit of a shame that some of these guys will cool off before the end of the season because we do have like over 100 games left to go. Right. Whereas la- a season like last year, this was it. Yeah. You, you put up your Adolis Garcia season and... You know, you're immortalized forever as being tied for the home run lead in a single season of Major League Baseball. But I, I'm all all else being equal, I'm glad that there are 100 plus more games left in the season. We don't need a repeat of 2020 for a no, lot of different definitely reasons. Definitely not. I I think the the idea of the um the older rookies having these breakouts is really interesting, and I wonder what it means in the broader like baseball sense. You know. There are still, even though teams are focused on younger, locking up those young players and the development within their own systems, there are still like times you're going to miss something about a player who can still contribute. And there's still those like times that teams can find these, you know, these gems still who haven't gotten their chances. Yeah, we definitely see this with players who don't have this like huge pedigree and they're not, you know, pegged as these like, can't miss prospects, you know, someone like Trout or, or Bryce Harper, you know, they come up when they're 19, where you see someone like Pete Alonzo, who was never, you know, was supposed to be this, this big star prospect had to really like put his time. I mean, part of this was on the Mets, but put his time in the minor league because everyone was just kind of like, is this guy actually for real? Is he for real? Let's promote him again. And, uh, you know, Eventually, he makes uh, the big leagues at, what, 24, 24. So, yeah, yeah, I I feel safe in saying he has the most home runs by a 24-year-old rookie. Because he (laughs) has the most home runs by any rookie (laughs) with 53 in 2019. He could have come up a couple of years before, but he, again, did not have that pedigree. You know, he was not um, a first-round pick or anything even close to that. So, I think that's sort of why his career was delayed. You know, we always talk about Nelson Cruz, too. Nelson Cruz didn't really... What was his first real productive year? 25, 26, something like that. Yeah, he wasn't a regular until he was 28 in 2009, and he made the All-Star team that year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I think we can uh, leave that there. Thanks for that rabbit hole, Neil. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.